0: Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director, Shane Woodford.
1: Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics. we have got a packed show for you. Glad to have the panel back. We'll also talk to Glenn Hansman, President of the BC Teachers Federation, get a bargaining update later in the show. But first off, real pleasure to welcome from Global BC, Keith Baldry and from the Vancouver Sun, Vaughn Palmer. Guys, how you doing? oh uh, all is well <laughs> all right uh always lots to talk about as well why don't we start with that uh, by-election uh, there were a series of three of course the closest one does burnaby south a uh, big win for jagmeet singh in burnaby south but uh the loss of seats to liberals in outremont in quebec uh keith uh, i guess a bit of give and take here but is there trouble in one side of the country and and sort of good news on the other or what
2: yeah, no, it's, uh, it was an important hurdle for Jugmeet Singh to get over. He had to win a seat, um, and, you know, it wasn't it went as expected. I mean, that wasn't NDP riding, and uh, so good for him. He's going to have a seat in the House of Commons. But it's one of those glass-half-full, glass-half-empty uh, nights for the New Democrats, because as a as, uh, laudatory as it was for him to win that seat in Burnaby, they lost in Outremont in Montreal, and that's a signal per- And they lost badly. It wasn't a close race. Uh, and they've got, uh, something like 16 seats in, uh, in that, uh, that province. And that is a signal perhaps that they are in, Significant trouble in Quebec, so he he's, he's heading to Quebec uh, soon to you know develop his Quebec strategy. But his numbers personally in Quebec are disastrous. Uh, the NDP could well lose a third of their caucus in this upcoming fall election. So he survived the sort of the night of the long knives it, that would have occurred had he lost this by election. But I don't think his leadership is necessarily secure come the fall vote, and that they take a giant step backwards as a result of losing uh, so many seats in Quebec.
1: Yeah, and I note that their uh, their federal fundraising, as far as the federal parties go, the NDP is really uh, taking a bit of a nosedive, and I think our colleague Gary Mason probably summed it up pretty well. Nice win for Mr. Singh, but Vaughn, the real work begins now, and he doesn't have much time to turn the ship around.
3: No, that's true, but I think I would start off by giving the guy credit for having The guts to come out here and do this, it was a high-risk thing to come out to British Columbia and run in a seat out here when he's from Brampton, and he moved out here. Uh, So, you know, give the guy credit. He he cleared the first hurdle. Uh, It's tough, yes, at the moment, but federal political scene is so volatile and has been so volatile for so long that at this distance from an election in October, I mean, remember, Tom Mulcair was leading the polls until Trudeau surged past him. So I, you know, no bets on what's going to happen between now and the fall. Yes, he's cleared the first hurdle. Yes, he's got a lot of hard work in front of him. But that's true of all the federal party leaders at the moment.
1: And uh, last round of questions on this one, Keith, but uh, one of the talking points out of the Burnaby South by-election was the People's Party, Bernier's Party, uh, they couldn't crack 2% in the other two ridings, but in Burnaby South they got uh, 10%, uh, which may have been a surprise to some. Uh, what can we read into that?
2: Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, you know, I, uh, full credit to the, their candidate, Laurelyn Thompson, who seemed to carve out a a media presence and a public persona that eluded, I think, the People's Party candidates in those other two by-elections. She ran as a school board candidate in Burnaby uh, last fall. You know, she finished 11th out of 13th, but she got something like 15,000 votes. So she she had a bit of a profile going in. So it's hard to figure out how much of that was her, that, that 10% or 11% was, was attributed to her own persona, and how much was actually to the frustrations on issues such as immigration and others that the People's Party is trying to exploit. Uh, But keep in mind, the the Reform Party, you know, this is where it it was basically got its co-birth, was in B.C., and there is always an underlying current of dissatisfaction with the status quo, no matter who the government is, and they can tap into anti-immigration feelings, anti-multiculturalism feelings, which I think are a little bit on the rise. And that 10% showing in Burnaby South may be an indication that the People's Party could have a stronger showing in B.C. than other provinces, with the exception of Quebec, and that would become, that would come at the expense of the Conservative Party. So that's another, uh, Vaughn's right, I mean, the, the, the federal situation is so volatile right now with the Liberals floundering in scandal. Uh, the NDP floundering in Quebec. Andrew Scheer not resonating with the voters that much, although he seems to be leading the uh, the polls right now. And then you factor in this, what could be the, the emergence of another reform party type phenomena in B.C. Uh, just changes everything.
1: Yeah. Also, it's a real problem, though, building a party and getting it in into sort of breaking into that power, power three federal parties in this country. I mean, the B.C. Greer, the BC, the, uh, the Green Party of Canada has been at it for quite some time. They can't seem to crack more than one seat, Vaughn.
3: All it takes is a lot of uh, publicity at the right moment in a federal election campaign, and you, know, you can suddenly become very, very famous and win a whole bunch of seats. So uh, that's the other strategy that sometimes works. Uh, win an election debate, uh, suddenly a surge ahead uh, of other parties that stumble. Um, you know, yeah, you're right. In the long run, you build a political party, and it can take a long time, but again, the political situation is so volatile that a leader who suddenly uh, shows some charisma and excitement uh, can make a big difference.
1: Uh, moving on to other matters, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is uh, back in the news uh, considering the National Energy Board decision. Uh, in Sort of the aftermath of that, uh, we'll all remember that constitutional challenge BC tried to launch uh, over threats from Alberta to enact a law to turn off the taps. The judge essentially saying, uh, OK, it was a threat. The w- law wasn't actually enacted, so there's nothing to challenge. And Mr. Eby more than welcome to sort of pick up the gauntlet on that if and when it does, in fact, become law. But there was some interesting stuff in there, Keith, including uh uh, the, our own Attorney General's argument, a government that's opposed the Trans Mountain pipeline, making a case for how incredibly crucial that pipeline is to this province.
2: Oh yeah, no, it was uh, delicious to read this, that uh, the V.C. The government's legal argument is that we desperately need your oil, therefore you can't turn off your taps. Oh, by the, at the same moment we don't need your oil on the other pipeline. It, it was... Uh, it was uh, an example i think of um, the sort of inconsistency of this government the v c government 's approach on this that on the one hand and the approach frankly of a lot of pipeline opponents on the one hand saying, This is a terrible thing, it must go." Uh, it must never happen. Uh, stand down right now. Don't build any pipelines. Oh, by the way, we do need oil. Uh, and it's, uh, it, you can apply this, I think, to all sorts of situations where there's an inconsistency, if not a hypocrisy, that there is still an immediate need for oil to on all sorts of aspects of society and the economy at the same time denouncing the fact that something is going to be built to actually transport oil or, in, or bitumen in, in this case. So it's, a, it's an inconsistency of the B.C. government's position, and I think we're going to see that inconsistency show up again and again and again uh, on various court challenges.
1: And Vaughn, Mr. Eby, of course, taking some flack in question period this week from uh, Andrew Wilkinson, himself a lawyer, saying he should have known better. This is all grandstanding, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, From your perspective, uh, was this a legitimate case that the Attorney General launched against Alberta, or should he, in fact, have known better?
3: It's an embarrassment. The judge there, you know, the judgment runs five pages, and the judge lists all the reasons why the courts in this country don't take on hypothetical cases. And he says that this law is hypothetical that they're challenging. It, it's true it passed the legislature, but it says right clearly in the text of the legislation that it, is, it takes effect only when cabinet proclaims it into force. And that never happened. So by being even vaguely aware of the legal precedents and having checked the cabinet order registry in Alberta EB would have known very well that this case wasn't going to fly because the law wasn't in force. It uh, went ahead anyway, and I take it it's like Burnaby's legal challenges to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. It is using public funds to grandstand politically and pander to opponents, never mind that your legal strategy has not a hope of succeeding.
1: And all of this... As a new record is set for oil by rail, and nobody is protesting that, Keith.
2: Well, they're not protesting it yet. Uh, I just think it'll take one oil spill uh, from a tanker uh, train uh, to bring it. To focus everybody again on the on the much more serious threat that rail cars pose than pipelines. Uh, there's so much misinformation and romanticism attached to the protest against the transmountain pipeline that is conveniently absent uh, absent from uh, the fact that there is a steadying and dizzying increase in tanker, uh, oil tanker train traffic. And we've seen spills before uh, into uh, rivers in B.C., and I think uh, all it will take is a, a, a more serious spill. Or even, you know, an explosion, God forbid, um, to again get people's minds uh, focused on the fact that uh, rail cars are not necessarily uh, the, the alternative to a pipeline. The other thing, Shane, I, I thought that people are now starting to wake up to um, the National Energy Board's decision on um, on Trans Mountain that was just released, uh, recommending to go ahead, pointed out again, and uh, this is getting more attention, that the biggest threat to southern uh, resident orca whales in uh, the Salish Sea is not, it's not tanker traffic. It's B.C. ferry traffic and other marine traffic. And I, so I think the public is starting to get its head around that this is not a black-and-white issue with, with the pipeline. There's much more layers of complexity here. There's so much marine traffic in the Salish Sea that even without this pipeline and the marine traffic that come with it, the the dangers to orcas are are prevalent and and remain constant. And the fact is, it's B.C. ferry traffic, and I can't help but note the irony. The very day that that decision came out, B.C. ferries announced, and the government announced, actually, it was was instructing B.C. ferries to uh, have 2,700 more very sailings in the very waters where the orca population is threatened. So again, an inconsistent position from the BC government on the one hand it opposes tankers, on the other hand it increases the number of really equivalent of tanker traffic in the very waters they claim to want to protect.
1: Yeah, and that was an interesting part of the NEB decision. They made 16 recommendations which are not conditions Uh, aimed at the marine traffic side of things with uh, the sort of lofty end goal of trying to improve the situation in an area they point out is already ravaged by human impacts, uh, be there a pipeline or or no pipeline. And it strikes me that there's a bunch of things at play here. One is jurisdiction. The NAB has none there. Matter of fact, the province has none there off the coast. That's federal government and then overlapping federal government agencies. So uh, I don't know how you kind of saw all all that stuff together. Fun.
3: Well, you've got you've got cruise ships in these waters and container ships and tankers right now and ferries, uh, any number of vessels going in and out of the waters. And, of course, uh, if we want really to see hypocrisy, go to the governor of Washington state who does a summit with the premier of British Columbia and joins Oregon in deploring this appalling increase of one tanker a day out of our waters well, the governor has a state with, what, five oil refineries, tankers coming in and out and out every day with, from Alaska and shipping oil out, and he grandstands against our one tanker a day. Uh, it, I mean, it really is phenomenal to see the hypocrisy on this issue.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we take a quick break here on Inside Politics and Radio NL. We're talking to Von Palmer and Keith Baldry, and we'll continue that conversation on the other side.
0: Now, Radio NL, 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL.
1: Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Von Palmer. Guys, let's turn our attention to measles uh, because it's become a little bit political. Uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix this week uh, has promised that as of this new school year in September, there's going to be mandatory uh, uh, vaccination records. Essentially, any student going to school is going to have to prove they're vaccinated. uh, Or if they're not, they're going to have to say why. And then parents will be asked to either get up on it. If they refuse, if they're one of those anti-vaxxer crowds, roll my eyes, um, then they'll have to essentially go into some kind of a class and be informed about this. Uh, Keith, your take on this is a good move. Is there some problems ahead here? What's your take on it?
2: Well, I think it's a good move. There may be some problems ahead. There may be a court challenge and, uh, you know, villages freedom and that type of thing. But this is a, a growing public health menace. The the anti-vaxxer crowd, and I, I attribute a lot of this to, to, frankly, social media and the Internet. People have access to phony information in a way, they never had access before. Uh, you weren't able to uh, access fake um, or you know pseudoscience uh, websites and, and such uh, a, dec- a couple decades ago. You can now. You, you actually type in the word "vax," vac- I think uh, vaccinations on Google, and the first things that pop up are a bunch of anti vaxxer websites. It's just it's a, a phenomenon that has to be, I think, nipped in the bud. I'm not sure if we can. Actually, if we've got to this too late, but the fact that measles now is starting, we had an outbreak in 2014, which was much more serious than what we're seeing right now. But you know, I've got a colleague who's got a daughter uh, who cannot be vaccinated because she she's uh, a transplant of. Person who needs anti-rejection drugs and therefore can't take uh, can't be vaccinated, and she lives in basically mortal fear if if uh, suddenly is exposed to someone with measles. It's a uh, uh, it's a very serious situation. Dix has been wrestling with this, and I think uh, I've had a lot of talks with him, and he's he's very strong pro-vaccination, uh, but he's taking a big step here that come the fall you've got to show your records if you want to get your kid into school, and if you can't, you, know, you better make a very serious argument why why you. While you Shouldn't be able to do that. But I think it's an inevitable step that has to be
1: taken. Yeah, I think it's one of the greatest ironies of our time. We invent the internet, the greatest information resource that humankind has ever seen. And in some ways, it's made us stupider. Mm -hmm. Uh, Vaughn, what strikes me about this, and and it's one of the problems, you can have this mandatory vaccination record. But I think it's a good step to identify who's vaccinated and who's not. But when it comes to actually removing uh, a vulnerable student or a non-vaccinated student from school, there's some legal and some legislative tools that are missing. Schools school simply can't do it. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I, and I have a little one in the school system. I cannot send my kid to school with anything peanut-related. But we have unvaccinated children in the school system, so I think there's going to be some kind of effort. I, I would suspect to provide a tool there to do, have a next step beyond this mandatory vaccination record stuff.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, So my daughter has the famous peanut allergy, and it can be fatal, and she's the one who pointed this out to me, that, you know, the schools can police peanut butter sandwiches, but they can't police vaccinations. I do think, and, and Dix has seized on this, and seized on the work done by British Columbia's previous medical health officer, the great Perry Kendall, uh, which, which he did the work in, in 2014 to do this, and the government didn't go ahead with it. So there is, there is work there. What we're trying to do is to get the vaccinated population up to what is regarded as the safe level, which is about 95%. Uh, so Ontario, even with, and Dick's pointed this out the other day, even with the compulsory um, vaccination regimen that they brought in in Ontario, they're only up at 91, 92 percent. Newfoundland, which doesn't have it, is at 96. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's what we're headed for. I think the, the the enormous amount of publicity we've had around this in the last couple of weeks has done a lot to increase vaccination rates in British Columbia. And I think we will see progress on this over time. I think the, the anti-vax crowd are on the defensive now, which sort of welcome to see. I agree with what you and Keith have both said, that uh, it's certainly the Internet is to blame in a way of social media. But remember, there were some very prominent celebrities that crusaded on this as well, and that have a lot to answer for. In fact, I'm amazed they haven't been sued by the patients of children who have been seriously harmed by their
1: crusade against vaccination. Yeah, amen to that. Let's take a break to the bottom of the hour and get caught up. On the other side, we'll continue our conversation with Keith and Vaughn as we turn our attention to bargaining between the BCTF and the province, as well as some other topics. More coming your way right after this.
0: Cool news Now, Radio NL, 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL.
1: Good morning. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. So we're in week two of uh, a new round of bargaining between BC Teachers and BCPC, essentially the province, uh, who are going into this with the provincial bargaining mandate of getting to a three-year deal at two, two, and two. Uh, the BCTF tells me they too are hunting for a three-year deal. I guess the stumbling block will be many, class size and composition for sure, uh, but can they get to a two, two, and two, Keith?
2: Well, they can get to a two-two and two if the will is there, and they're not going to get to a three-three and three. So, what the TF has to get their head around is that they are not going to be the exception here. They're not going to be the only public sector union to secure some sort of you know greater contract wage increase than every other union has has been uh, negotiated. Uh, so, but the, and the TF again, their bargaining structure is quite undif- quite different than other unions. Uh, the unions usually have uh, the same people negotiating the contract you know, year in, year out. The TF just has, you know, appoints teachers uh, who don't necessarily have any skill at negotiating at the table. And so the, and so the assumptions, the expectations in the TF talks are usually higher than reality. But i got a lot of time for people like Glenn Hansman, who you're going to have on your program. Uh, he's, I think, uh, grounded in reality. But he doesn't speak necessarily for the union. In fact, he won't be at the table. His term is going to be up when this, thing, when this contract is up. It's Terry Mooring who's going to be the new president. Uh, so good on them to, um, to get there. I'll believe it when I see it, but uh, I think there's reason to be a little more optimistic this round of teacher talks than there were the last couple of rounds. So I think uh, they're starting to wake up that they're all part of the same sort of group here. Every, all the unions are in the same pot of money. And in fact, the budget has been set. It's in the budget, which is unusual. There's a contingency fund in the budget that was released uh, last week that has $560 million or so for the coming year for wage increases. And that basically locks the TF into that, that pool of money. And that means no more than two, two, and two.
1: So here's the question, and my sense is, from, from my contacts within the union, uh, is that, okay, they might get stuck in a two-two-and-two, two, two, but there's ways to kind of get around that, and uh, as has been done with some other public sector union deals, uh, chiefly among them, an adjustment to the salary grid itself, maybe eliminate the bottom two tiers, maybe add to the top. Uh, Vaughn, is that one at, and one way to kind of sneak around the two-two-and-two two, two, or no?
3: Well, there is room, but, uh, you know, Keith's right. That contingency, second contingency fund for public sector pay settlements, in the budget is, it works out to two, two, and two for the next three years. The amounts that are in there roughly translate to 2%, 2%, and 2% over the next three years. Now, yes, there's room to move there, there. You could make an argument for some funding to recruit Teachers for difficult to fill positions or starting salaries in some places, but a big across the board thing that's going to have uh, an impact on the budget. I don't think the government's going to do it, and that is because of what are in a bunch of the other contracts which we have the text of sitting in front of us. Uh, Keith and I both, and those are me too clauses. Some of the public sector unions sense that it might be possible that the government would uh, give a raise to another group coming around and sign later. So they got a clause in their contract that says, if you give more to somebody else after we sign, we get it as well. And I don't blame them for getting that, but that's another check on the government's ability to give the teachers more than anybody else. If they do, they have to turn around and give the same amount to the other unions.
1: Yeah. And the other big uh, hurdle, and I already mentioned, is class size and composition. Uh, Keith, as we know, uh, this is going to be the first time in almost two decades that this stuff is on the table. Uh, and that's going to, and BCPC he told me flat out it's going to provide the most complex set of negotiations they've seen in a long time.
2: Oh, yeah. No, the language on uh, class size and composition is so complex. It's like literally, uh, we were given a briefing on it a while ago. It's literally a stack of paper that's like, uh, you know, a foot high. It, it's so multi-layered and complex and it varies from district to district. It's, uh, uh, but now the flip side, of that, the government is putting more money into K-12 education than ever before. I mean the funding increases are real. Although I note with some irony again, it, it's sort of the reality is going from opposition to government. The NDP in opposition for 16 years decrying all sorts of things in education. Now they are faced, in Vancouver for example, the prospect of a bunch of schools closing. And, and and Patty Back the former Vancouver school board chair has been having much glee on Twitter by retweeting Rob Fleming the education minister's tweets when he was in opposition denouncing all aspects of education policy and pointing out well nothing's changed here Mr Fleming why don't you stand by your earlier tweets and the same thing applies to class size and composition and to the teachers negotiations so it's it's going to be fascinating to watch how the NDP deals with an issue that it rode quite hard for years whether it's teacher wages or class size and composition but now they're the employer and they don't have as much money as they did in opposition <laughs> yeah and they can fund it
1: uh von uh, final word to you on this topic but um mr hansman uh will say all along hey listen i'm confident we can reach a deal uh by the time the new contract expires. the old contract expires in june uh, they do have some leeway between the new school year over the summer but do you sense a problem here do you think this is going to get done as both sides say it's going to or, or, or no
3: well, the New Democrats have done very, very well on this file. I mean, they started last year, and they set the goal of getting everybody signed before the end of the, f- of the fiscal year. All the contracts expire, except for the teachers on the 31st of March. They got everybody. They got nurses. They got, I think, doctors are still to come. Yeah. So that's a big one. But everybody else is signed. And, uh, you know, so you, you say, well, the government's record so far is pretty good. But there certainly is a coming down to earth uh, thing that I think will have to happen with the TF. Uh, they're going to have to come around. Around of figuring out uh, that they're going to get the same rough, the same across the board as everybody else. They may find ways to go around it and tweak some other funding things, but I can't see the government giving them more than two, two, and two.
1: Uh, last topic, money laundering, uh, the green party making some headlines this week, uh, jumping on the call as there has been among some municipalities for that public inquiry. Uh, we've raked over the pros and cons of that, uh, for, oh, quite a few times in this show, but, um, in your mind, Keith, is this, is this, uh, a calculated political move from the greens? Will this push the public inquiry wave over the edge? What's your assessment?
2: Well, I don't think the greens really factor into this thing. They, they love to make public pronouncements, pretending that they have some sort of equal voice in government as the NDP, but that's not the case. I mean, I still have not seen any indication from John Horgan or David Eby when they talk about this. They seem to talk about, they continue to talk about the no, what, they emphasize the negatives of an inquiry rather than the positives. And until that equation shifts, uh, I'm not going to bet the farm that there's going to be a public inquiry. We're going to be seeing, I think, We'll be talking to Mr. Horgan this week on this again. We'll see if he shifts his messaging. But uh, right now, he seems to talk about the downside. And and they want Peter German, uh, who they hired before, to finish his work on uh, investigating uh, real estate and and horse racing and and that uh, aspect. Uh, And until that's over, and that's still a ways away, I don't see a public inquiry being called.
1: Yeah. Uh, last word to you, Vaughn. I mean, the Greens have been harping on this in QP all week long. They obviously see some room here politically uh, to kind of get some kind of momentum out of this particular issue. you agree? Or?
3: No, I think they've got, they're trying to figure out some way to get back to the uh, the 3,700 votes and, and 13% of the popular vote share they lost in Nanaimo. Uh, uh, EB and Horgan will wait for the report from Peter German and the report from Maureen Maloney on uh, the the problems out there. If those two come back and say the only way you're going to get this thing solved is a public inquiry, we'll have one. If they say there's still a bunch of stuff you can do and you should do it first, that's what they will do. EB said the other day that he doesn't want a public inquiry to stand in the way of fixing the problems right now, and that's what the government has been focused on.
1: Yeah, that said, still a lot of public outrage over this issue boiling way out there, guys. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. Take bye care, bye. Jane. That was Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sons of Vaughn Palmer. Look forward to chatting with them again next week. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics, diving back into the education issue on the other side, talking bargaining with the president of the BC Teachers Federation right after this.
0: Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 a.m., and Radio NL.com. Accountable to you, for Kamloops Computer Centre, this is Inside Politics, with Shane Woodford on Radio NL.
1: Good morning and welcome to the program, the President of the BC Teachers Federation, Glenn Hansman. Glenn, how are you?
4: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, appreciate you coming on. Okay, so uh, the week of Family Day, uh, you of the long weekend there, uh, the week following you guys began uh, talks, a new round of bargaining. I know you've been chomping at the bit to get things going. I talked to Education Minister Rob Fleming. He says the table, and it's his words, uh, nicely set uh, to get a deal done before June. Um, first off, I don't know where things stand right now. Any updates or anything you can pass on as far as sort of the current state of things or no?
4: Well, I mean, the minister summed it up well in terms of uh, the actual bargaining and proposals. Those are going to happen there, and this is still early days, but we're feeling optimistic. We're we're starting around the same time that we did um, in the last round, but we have way many more dates set between now and the end of June, and that's good. Uh, that signals that both sides are, are motivated to put as much energy into it between now and the middle of June, and hopefully we could... Uh, make really good use of those days and have productive conversations and reach a deal and have it ratified before this current school year comes and goes.
1: Uh, well, I talked to the BCPC chair Alan Chell who was telling me that uh, they too would like to get a deal done it seems like there's some simpatico as far as a term it seems both sides want three years uh, we won't wait into salary just yet but uh, one thing he did tell me that, stru- that uh, stood out to me was uh, he called this one of the most complex rounds of bargaining we've ever seen with the class size and composition back uh, for the first time in about uh, well, just slightly less than two decades I suppose uh, tell me a little bit about how that is going to create a new wrinkle at the table.
4: Well, I don't know if it's any more complicated than it was, say, 20 years ago, the last time that the parties were able to properly negotiate these things. And it's not shouldn't be lost on anyone that had the Liberal governments when Christy Clark was Minister of Education, not legislated away that language, presumably in each round of bargaining between then and now, things would have continued to have evolved and changed and there would have been more commonality amongst the 60 collective agreements around the province. And so, you know, the fact that there's so much variety out there, you know, for sure that adds some uh, uh, challenge that we haven't dealt with in the, in the past few rounds of bargaining, but these things are, are solvable. And I have some faith that with some goodwill and some creativity and the willingness to kind of listen and come up with some solutions solutions, will arrive at a good place between now and the end of June. So it's uh, it's just the inherent challenge of uh, having 60 different school districts and historically Collective agreements originally being negotiated in each and every one of those school districts instead of the big ticket items like salary and class size and that sort of stuff now being done at the central provincial table. It's, uh, it's uh, taking an old system and uh, trying to squeeze it into uh, to one where everything is centralized, but it's, uh, there's smart people at that table on both sides and they'll figure it out.
1: Yeah, it sounds like the complication will be sort of um, pressing fast forward on that evolution in a single round of talks to cover, what, the last 18 to 20 years or so.
4: Yes, and just, um, you know, there's other challenges associated with the fact that where the needs are, where we have needs now, we're necessarily where they were 20 years ago. And uh, there's a lot of um, gaps still that exist out there in the system. We've been really complimentary to Rob Fleming as minister for having put the uh, foot to the gas pedal when it comes to making announcements around new school construction and seismic upgrade, though I understand there's still, you know, some uh, people waiting on bated breath and Kamloops around some announcements on that front. But on the operational side, not much has changed since the election. And so hopefully collective bargaining will be an opportunity to inject some more funds and services when it comes to the things that students Directly experience themselves, but aside from that, there's there's a lot of room um, to improve when it comes to recruitment efforts and making sure that schools in every part of the province have certified, qualified teachers working in every classroom and on every day that a classroom teacher is absent.
1: On the operational side, what does that mean specifically for people not in the know? Are we talking just the uh, the human element, teachers themselves, or, or something else?
4: Mostly the human, uh, human element. And so the uh, education budget is sort of split into two. Uh, on the capital side pays for the buildings, not just the current ones, but whenever a new school is announced or if there's a seismic upgrade or a major expansion to a worksite, operational is what pays for the services that go to kids. So it's mostly human resources, not just teachers, but also QP uh, members who work as education assistants or the other support staff, principals and vice principals, the superintendents, and um, that side of the ledger really hasn't changed other than money going towards enrollment increases and the results of the Teachers Collective Agreement win and other sort of non-discretionary routine things that you would expect government to be paying for. And so there hasn't been a, a noticeable change when it comes to operational funding since the provincial election, other than those things that flow directly from our court win or things that any government would do. And so, Now we have to have a real and honest conversation about all these things that the NDP campaigned on, like further reducing class sizes and ensuring that there are teacher materials and school supplies in place that match the new curriculum, eliminating the fundraising that parents and others are having to do all the time just for basics in schools. Um, Those are real needs. And we're very interested um, to make sure that kids, no matter where they attend school in the province, have greater access to a wider range of opportunities and are taught by qualified teachers. And so that's going to take a bit more effort beyond the additional teacher education program spots that um, Minister Pluming and Minister Mark have already announced.
1: Uh, as I mentioned, it seems, uh, I've talked to you about this before, a uh, three-year deal, as I recall, sits right with you. BCPC says three-year deal is fine with them, which fits within the governing uh, bargaining government bargaining mandate, which is three years with salaries of increases of 2, 2, and 2. Uh, on the salary side, uh, you might be on the same page on years. Does, it, does a salary increase of 2, 2, and 2 sit well or no?
4: Well, that's it's still early days for those conversations. I have to look at what happened in all the other public sector agreements, and the general wage increase in those agreements uh, were all two, two, and two, but in each of them, there were components of the membership that had um, additional amounts of money because there was a grid restructuring, or there was some sort of labor market adjustment that was done. And so those are some of the conversations that we need to have in terms of what can we do to recognize the fact that BC as a jurisdiction is completely out of step when it comes to um, salary. And also there are parts of the province that are extremely expensive to live in right now. Housing is a major barrier to recruitment. Um, And I know teachers aren't alone in this regard. Like there's a lot of families out there that a hard time paying their bills, are priced out of the market or the community in which they're living when it comes to housing. And so we need to be having some conversations around the kind of overall compensation when it comes to dollars going into people's pockets. And we also have to talk about what working conditions look like teachers in all school districts, not just the ones that um, had teach positions restored by the Supreme Court of Canada decision.
1: So that sounds like a teacher grid. So if you go two, two, and two, say, would there be movement then to rejig the salary grid, say, bring up the lower bottom, readjust the top tiers so that overall salaries are changed, but not so much the actual, you know, on the face of it, year by year salary increase?
4: Those are the sorts of things that we saw in, in most of the other public sector agreements that have been reached out there. Some sort of restructuring of the grid, shortening of it, adding steps to the top, or looking at components of the membership that do specialized roles and perhaps making some adjustments there. And, you know, it's uh, the fact that it's um, a three-year term that government seems to be seeking. That's in the ballpark of what we usually seek. And so that means that you don't have to solve every single problem in one round of bargaining. In the previous round, uh, Minister Fassbender um, in February of that round of bargaining announced that government wanted a 10-year deal. And, That makes it extremely challenging because then both sides are inclined to try to resolve every issue under the sun, um, knowing that there might not be another opportunity until a decade down down the road. When you're reaching agreements that are shorter, it means that you can sort of park some concerns for now or stage things in a more... Um, easy-to-manage way, knowing that you're going to be coming back to the table and revisiting all these conversations again, um, not too far down the road. And so uh, hopefully we will, uh, before too long, uh, sometime in the spring, reach something that um, teachers and school districts will be pleased to ratify, and then we could enter the next school year with um, stability and more supports and services into classrooms.
1: Well, it's a a set of bargaining. I think everybody will be keeping a very, very close eye on, very interested to see how it goes. Uh, Glenn, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. That was the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Glenn Hansman, and that brings to an end this edition of Inside Politics. We'll see you again here on Radio NL, another show coming your way next Friday. 106.7
0: Logan Lake. 98.1 Blue River. 97.5 Evola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.